I'm going to try to synopsize this script for y'all. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody, back to No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I'm Jackson Nikolai. Thank you all for tuning back in again. Here we are, still plugging away at our themed month of the season. We are, we are now better than 50% of the way through theme month, like 51 or 52% through by, yeah. this, by this point in the episode. As, as of these 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> by the time this next hour goes by, we will be three quarters of the way through wow. themed month, which means we'll have talked about three <laughs> of four of our one-person show scripts for monologue month. Month. It's yep. been a it's been a wild ride so far through three very different scripts so far. Oh man! Right. I mean, including the one for today. Well, it's true though. This this third one is going to be like really different from the other two. I think that's part of the glory of of one person shows is they're really sub, like subjective as to whoever is producing them. You really get to know the both the playwright and the actor. Uh, in this case, it's going to be both um, uh, by way of the one person shows that they produce. Right. Yeah. So so in, in that first week, we did search for signs of intelligent life in the universe. Jane Wagner, Lily Tomlin, uh, great fictional show. Great characters, very funny, kind of a classic American uh, one-person show. And and then last week we talked about Doug Wright's play, I Am My Own Wife, which is maybe a a very um, identifiable classic type of one-person show, the character study, where there are other characters in the show. In fact, there's a lot of other characters in the show, but it really was a character study of the life of, I'm now a week later, the German name is going to escape me. Charlotta was her first name. Uh, I right, don't remember right. the pronunciation. Malsdorf, <laughs> maybe, I don't know. But uh, last week, character study. This week, we are looking at a sweeping historical play that takes place over hundreds of years that involves many people and that was written primarily from detailed interviews and historical documents. The the playwright actor as the basis for the creation of the show together. It is an exciting different kind of show. Yeah, super different genre for this one. We're talking about House Arrest by Anna DeVere Smith. And this uh, House Arrest, I'll give you the subtitle as well, uh, Search for American Character in and Around the White House, Past and Present. So that is the play that we're moving into today. I'm not going to like spoil too much of our conversation ahead of time, but as we're saying, it is it is a different genre. It's a it's an entirely different wheelhouse of theater, but it's a wing of theater that is a really empowering part of theater. Uh, oral history, verbatim uh, conversations and monologues. So, so I'm excited to get to jump into it. Uh, before we do, I do want to take just a second and say thank you to all of our patrons out there on patreon.com slash noscriptpodcast. Podcast. Y'all out there are doing an awesome job at helping us uh, make this podcast keep happening. Those of you who are longtime listeners know that we love having these conversations with each other and with all of you out there in podcast land about theater, about theater scripts and about theater genres and, and big
big beats in theater history as well as prominent scripts. Um, those of you uh, who are out there know though that we, while we love having these conversations, they're not a free endeavor. There's uh, a bunch of costs associated with hosting a podcast, with producing scripts, with, uh, you know, when we can't find them at our at our local libraries and just the considerable time investment that we have in this in this podcast and with, with getting to interact with it. So if you're looking for a way to help out the podcast, if you're enjoying what you're hearing and looking for a way to be a part of the No Script Podcast movement of sorts, head on over to patreon.com slash no script podcast. That is the best way that you can have a really meaningful impact for the show. Over there, you'll find a bunch of different tiers of patronship with the lowest tier being at just $1. And that $1 a month patronship, $12 over the course of a year helps us out immensely with those hosting fees, with procuring scripts for the show. So if you're looking for a way to help us out, head on over to patreon.com slash podcast. Thanks again to all of our patrons who have already made that step, and we will see you over there. And now, back to the script. Back to the script. So, Anna DeVere Smith, she is film and television actor and stage actor. Um, I recognized her when I finally looked up the picture and the videos for watching the show and stuff from The West Wing, a uh, yep. show that I love dearly. Lots of you probably out there will as well, but she was also a nurse Jackie and, and lots of other stuff like that. And, and her television and film life uh, is is. is I think kind of separate from her stage life because as a playwright and actor, Anna Devere Smith is really known for this style of theater called doc. She calls it documentary theater. You might be inclined to call it oral history uh, or verbatim theater. Those are all words that are used. And we did talk some about this last week. This play is more similar to I Am My Own Wife than it is to Search for Signs of Intelligent Life in the Universe. Um, in that, it, it the, the material for the play was from interviews that she conducted and from historical documents. And the play is verbatim from those sources. I don't say that to steal from Jackson's summary, although that's a lot of it. It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> but to introduce her, because this is not the only show that she's done in this style. This is really what she does as a playwright and actor. Um, 1992, she she created the show Fires in the Mirror, which lots of people know, really popular one-person performance documentary, verbatim, oral history style theater. Also 1993, Twilight Los Angeles, similar. Both of those plays won Drama Desk Awards for one-person performance, um, which is, uh, interestingly, an award that was also won by Jefferson Mays, who was the actor for I Am My Own Wife, which we talked about last week. Um, Fires, uh, Fires in the Mirror was also nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. Uh, Twilight Los Angeles went on to win two, or was nominated for two Tonys, including Best Actress for her. She plays the one person in these one person shows. And, and, and then, of course, it went as nominated for Best Play, too. Um, Anna DeVere Smith is a MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. In 2012, President Obama awarded her the National Humanities Medal. So she does a lot of work in the theater. She is a really incredible artist in so many ways. And this play, House Arrest, is a little bit different from those earlier two shows in that it is a play that 
let's say, could be performed by one person and was performed by one person, by her, uh, but also doesn't necessarily have to be. House Arrest was developed over several years um, in, in the writing of it and the creation of it. And, it, and it, when it was at the arena stage in Washington in 97, part of its development process, it was actually performed by a cast as large as 14. Um, in 1999, the Mark Taper Forum in Los Angeles, it also had a large cast. But in 2000, when it premiered at the Public Theater, it was Anna DeVere Smith doing what she does, does best. The whole show was just her in these um, incredible acting representations of all of these people that she interviewed, plus historical documents. If, if you're interested in seeing what that looks like, you can find a TED Talk that Anna DeVere Smith gave in 2005 where she brought four characters, for, and these are real people, of course, because when we say characters today, we mean people. <laughs> these are real humans. She brought these impersonations of four people that she does, um, and they're real words that she really got from interviews, to the TED Talk and perform them one right after another. It's all material from House Arrest. Uh, you can't find the whole show anywhere as far as I can tell, but you can find those four little bits, and they're four of the more important monologues throughout the show. And it's really incredible to see her step into these characters, embrace these whole different humans that she's playing. She has this idea. It is written into the stage directions of this script, but it goes much beyond that in her life and work of performing this kind of theater in bare feet. Right, right. That's a fascinating uh, aspect of, of the script that kind of comes out in some of the stage directions, but really I discovered it in like in, in or, uh, reviews of the play of, of folks who commented on it. Right. So she goes to this TED Talk and is not wearing shoes. And it's this idea of, she's, in the TED Talk, she says it this way, walking in their words. That when you take off your shoes, you actually have the ability to like walk a mile in another person's shoes, I guess. Right. Uh, but but it, it's sort of core to her idea of documentary verbatim theater. And so the stage directions for this show ask this, that the show be performed without shoes, except for in one very specific shoed moment. Right, right. It's a very, it's a very kind of a humbling, almost like I'm submitting many things about myself to these characters to allow them to inform what I'm doing now. So yeah, that's a, that's a fascinating, like extra little tidbit about, about, about her, her uh, performance philosophy. Um, okay, so I'm going to try to synopsize this script for y'all. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> um, in some ways, we, we, we often joke about the easiness of, of one or the other of our roles, whether it's context or synopsis. And I, I think this is kind of easy, but in the fact that it's so complicated. Right, because um, <laughs> it's impossible to do, the effort can, can be low because no right. matter how much work you did, you'd never be able to succeed in synopsizing yeah. this wild hour and a half whatever of theater right right absolutely so so this play does take place over the course of like you know 200 ish years of american history um it's a play that includes such characters as thomas jefferson we got uh elizabeth keckley we got president abraham lincoln we got walt whitman in this play we've got uh sally hennings sally hennings is in this very important president george bush senior is in this play there's all these characters from all of u.s history and uh, they're all telling this pretty common story. And that common story is along the lines of 
president's interaction with public opinion, specifically via the press and via the media. Um, and and how the relationship between the presidents and and the press and and uh, and and people's opinions of the presidents change across the centuries, especially I would say in relation to presidents' affairs or extramarital's affairs. Right. Um, she like uses the lens of the presidents' sex lives across all these years to investigate the relationship between presidents and the press and the people. So the way that she does that is pretty chronologically, for the most part. There's a little bit of, of flipping back and forth between the presidents, but for the most part, it's chronological through the acts. We first deal with Jefferson, and uh, then we move on to Lincoln, then to FDR, then to uh, John Kennedy, briefly, uh, a short a short account of John Kennedy's assassination, and, and then Nixon's uh, eventual rise to power as a result of three uh, murders, um, Kennedy... Martin Luther King Jr. and... Uh, the other Kennedy. The other Kennedy. <laughs> Robert Kennedy. There we go. There's the word. Um, and then we uh, hit George Bush Sr. for a little while, and then we kind of culminate in uh, Bill Clinton and the Monica Lewinsky affair, which uh, interestingly led to a led to the Broadway redo of this play. Uh, Anna Devere Smith had to write in more of the stuff around the Bill Clinton affair because it happened. It was happening in, in real time. As she time. was interviewing and, and researching and doing stuff for the play, right, there's that incredible moment at the end where she's now going to play Bill Clinton as uh, from an interview that she personally conducted with Bill Clinton, but the right. note has to be inserted and it's very important that yeah. this interview happened before the Monica Lindsay scandal broke. So she was doing the interviews and research for this play as the scandal broke, which eventually becomes some of what the play is about is this scandal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so that's, I mean, that's kind of the most I can do for the synopsis of this play is it's, it's a, it's a kind of a walkthrough of these interactions with people throughout history who were around the presidents um, or the presidents themselves via letters, written interviews, recorded or personal interviews conducted by Anna Devere Smith with journalists, with presidents, with people around them during the times that they were in power. Yeah, and and every bit, every word that appears in this show is either an inter the result of an interview conducted by Anna Devere Smith, where what is being said aloud is words spoken by the interviewee in that interview, so someone else's actual words, or from historical documents, so letters, uh, essays, uh, newspaper articles, etc. But that is the only textual material in the play, and that is kind of the classic example of documentary oral history verbatim style theater. Right, exactly, and it, and and it leans into some of the uh, journalistic slash reporting tendencies of Anna Devere Smith. It's something really kind of special um, that this play can do, and that theater can do, which is dif different than what uh, written journalism can do. Is it can record people's verbatim kind of stutters, where they kind of have to restart themselves. You get you get to know the people who are speaking it differently than journalism does. Journalism has to kind of polish up someone's sentences for it to function in a newspaper. And 
And that doesn't happen in verbatim in verbatim theater. Verbatim theater is tasked with the uh, we will perform this in exactly the words of the people. So you get that throughout this with all the journalists who are trying to, especially the journalists who are trying to recount the times around Bill Clinton's presidency, and they're, they're you get their discomfort and they're like they're like hemming and hawing over their role as journalists in in that situation. Well, you, you you've broached the subject that I that I was one of the things I was really interested in talking. About, yeah, which was, I know. <laughs> what makes a script like this different from a history book? Right now, I'm reading a great biography. That's the book that I'm reading in my life right now. I like. I really love to read really good, well-written historical biog- biographies, especially from the Revolution and War period. It's just a side interest that I have in my life. Um, so I'm reading one right now that I love. So fascinating. What makes th- reading this play different than that? Right, because this play, as you struggled with in the synopsis, doesn't have a main character doesn't have like any kind of identifiable protagonist on a journey. Um, maybe Anna DeVere Smith as the actor is the one on the journey. I don't know. It's pretty foggy there. Um, so it's a presentation in a very deliberately crafted order, for sure, of interviews and historical documents. So why is this not just a history book? And one of the answers you just gave, which I thought was a, a, an awesome answer, was <laughs> the the verbatim piece of it, that you're not cleaning up, you are intent on performing the words as they were spoken um, and the theatricality of that, the stutters, the stammers, the misspe... In the beginning stage direction, she says, you know, you'll notice that a lot of... Sometimes those sentences don't make any sense or they double back on themselves or they're repetitive. Don't cut that out and don't Mm -hmm. say it wrong. Say it exactly like it's written, even though it sounds wrong, because that's how the person said it. And that is not something that you would find in history books or in in, in journalism, uh, other than when they would, you know, the, the historiographer would would note it, the, not the historiographer, the historian would like note, who said that this way. Right. Right, right, exactly. And 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 that that works fine in those mediums, but I think what what uh verbatim theater oral history theater is trying to claim is that this is a this is the other aspect that you get from doing this as opposed to reading a history book is you are really spending time with these characters and a lot of them are kind of nondescript characters I mean I'm I'm sorry I'm sorry these specific journalists she talked to I don't I don't know them um, and here I am you know 10, 10 20 years later or whatever um, these are people who are not necessarily Abraham Lincoln's, who are not Thomas Jefferson's, who are not Hillary Hillary Clinton's, who are who are uh, kind of under the radar folks, who nevertheless have really insightful uh, words to say um, ab- about the current situation. And so the the commitment to introducing people to these unspoken characters lies in that verbatim uh, commitment uh, to to fully represent their styles of speech and how they interact with the situation. The other thing that is interesting here, and you would find in other mediums, and I'll explain what I mean by that in a second, but this play does not have any uh, like reflection 
on what you're hearing, right? This is not um, like, for example, in the biography I'm reading right now, there'll be like a long, a long quote from uh, the you know whatever paper or essay we're talking about or or personal letter, and then the historian will go in and write a good three pages of summary. This is why that letter was important. This is hey, look at this word that they used and how you can note how that word connects to this word they used before. This is the sort of the time frame in which you're seeing this. That kind of reflection is not in this play. All you get is the 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 text answer of the interview, which sometimes goes on for pages, sometimes are very long monologues, and then the scene shifts to the next person in line. Um, and the reflection, the insight that you gain from Anna Devere Smith is in how the interviews, the historical documents, the whatever, are arranged and compiled next to each other and the picture they tell as a whole. Now, you would get that in some other mediums, but that would be like a collection of Thomas Jefferson's essays, you know? You just read them back to back without anybody providing insight on it. And that's not crafted, you know what I mean? That There's no intent to organize those in a way to tell a story. So this has got that unique sense of no reflection on what you're seeing, but they are still organized in such a way as to tell this story over, you know, hour and a half, two hours. Right, with people who probably never met each other in real life, possibly never met each other in real life, and certainly don't meet each other in the play. There's a couple of scenes that are, you know, interesting acting technical uh, fiascos, basically, where there's two characters talking, um, overlapping each other within the same scene. Um, but even those are often not them talking to each other, but rather uh, talking about a similar topic. Um, or there's there's scenes where, like, uh, one scene immediately prior was set up a, the, the concept of a polygraph test, and then the next interview is all about, like, taking a polygraph test and, and how that was for the person. Two different people talking about roughly the same thing. Yeah, and so they they end up lining up next to each other in ways that sometimes the the later interview will comment on the previous interview as in what you just described sometimes they'll be set up for payoff very later on for example very early in the play the the bill clinton which is kind of the the main subject of the play is the clinton administration especially bill's relationship to the press but you get a, a nod to that very early on in an interview um, and then you don't come back to it for probably a third or a half of the play until we finally arrive back at the clinton administration after our sweep through history yeah, yeah, it's it is interesting that the the whole play is kind of bookended by that nod. I think it's the same character, if I'm remembering it correctly. Both the initial interview and the last interview has the same character kind of reflecting uh, in the moment of the Clinton administration on 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 uh, Clinton's uh, relationship with the press. Yeah, it, it, it's the the bookend interviews that you're describing at beginning and end are interviews with Studs Turkle, who's this. Yeah, wild old radio personality. I went back and listened to the way that he talked after <laughs> listening to Anna Devere Smith perform him at that TED Talk. Wild guy. Um, I'd never heard of him before this play, and maybe that speaks to my age. For some of you out there, you, <laughs> you may know him. Um, but he has the beginning and end interviews because she asks him this question of what would you say is a defining moment in American history? Uh, as and, and his reflection on an answer to that question 
is split into the beginning and the end of the play. And he talks about this word slippage. Um, And he's quoting somebody else, but he's using it in the way that he wants to use it to describe this just sort of way that things gradually slip and shift together and generally downward. Moral slippage is the word used, perhaps from the Nixon administration's uh, uh, malfeasance. Uh, Mm -hmm. That potentially is where the word comes from. I I can't quite remember. But then, so you get this word slippage presented at the very beginning. And then what you get is a sweep through American history. (laughs) And you come to it finally at the end. He has that final commentary on the word slippage again, which makes you sort of frame the play around that phrase. Does that feel right to you? I think so. And it makes me it made me reflect on the moral slippage as well, because I think that is what what plot there is around that certainly centers around that theme. Right. And yet yet the first instance we get uh, is is of President Jefferson having significant moral slippage. So it's not that we're moving from a place of of uh, heightened morality to the present moment, um, but rather well, yeah, I, I, it, it, and it, it the president. I'm not sure that the president having you know, more embracing moral slippage or whatever is the slippage that it that that is reflected on as much as the relationship between the president and the press and how consuming that relationship is in the Sally, the, the, the whole first third of the play or so is about Jefferson and about the Sally Hemings, you know, thing that was going on. Um, and there's well, a let's, lo- let's be explicit about right. it. Yeah. The, 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 <laughs> the, uh, the uh, forced affair of him uh, having a relationship with Sally who is uh, enslaved by him. Um, and and uh, yeah, so, so that aspect starts off our journey into Jefferson. And, and some of what she talks about is that, and again, let me be clear too, that it's not she, Anna Devere Smith is not the one talking about it. The, right. Through historians, papers, essays and whatever uh the the whole cast of real people reflects on the way that that was just basically ignored that there were a bunch the 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 play based on the interviews and historians that she presents theorized that there were tons of Jefferson children running illegitimate in the time Jefferson children running around and Basically, nobody cared. Right. And that, of course, as you look at it through the lens of what happened in the Clinton administration, because the the after the Studs Terkel interview, I think the next one is George Stephanopoulos, who who uh, reflects on the president talking about Clinton not having any private time, except when he's in the Oval Office, which of course is all a setup for what we all know happened, um, which we don't get to till later on in the play. So you hear somebody somebody like George Stephanopoulos talk about the president not having any privacy, everybody knowing what he's doing at all times, and then you get this extended storytelling section about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings and the country just not caring uh, that he not only had a mistress, but an enslaved mistress and tons of children whom he never really recognized. Yeah. There's, I think there's a fascinating inverse relationship in there that we're, that we're addressing, right? Because the, the press is, there's, there's, there's this move. I think part of what the, uh, Oh boy, I, I, I'm I'm gonna space the name, so I'm gonna find it. Again. The Studs Terkel moral slippage line is talking about is a deterioration of the relationship, as you've said, um, and 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 
but 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 the it's interesting that he uses moral slippage because essentially the deterioration of the relationship involves the press being less okay with just turning a blind eye to the moral failings well, of the president. That's certainly <laughs> one way to look at it. But I do think that both perspectives on it are presented because on the one hand, the Thomas Jefferson story is an example of a time in which the, the, the country just sort of deciding to let it be and the press just sort of deciding to let it be. She does have a, a reporter who tried to report on it, but it didn't really go anywhere. Right. And and that's an example of where like the president is definitely um uh definitely in the wrong, definitely misbehaving and definitely hurting people. And the the press should have been more involved, perhaps. I don't know. It, I don't want to judge anything, but right. <laughs> right. that's I think the perspective of what's going on. But the the negative side of that is presented too throughout the play, that the press can be hounding, especially now, that they can be constantly searching for something to get wrong, especially as we get more to the modern era towards the end of the play, that you start to get reporter after reporter say some uncomfortable things about how, like, photographers that follow the president feel. Like, they're not really trying to capture content. They're there in case the president gets shot so right. that they definitely have a picture of that, you know? And that, and again, that's not her creating a character saying that. These are real reporters that she interviews and presents live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a fascinating series of those around, especially around photographers. Uh, uh, I'm, if I'm thinking of the one that you're thinking of correctly, she interviews this photographer who says, well, yeah, I'd I'd probably intervene if, if like, something bad was happening. But, but you know, in the case of him being shot, there's not really much I can do. So, so yeah, I'd, prob- I'd probably just take the picture then. Um, yeah, <laughs> well, I, that's yeah. not the one I was talking about, but that's a great one, too. because and, and that one comes in this series of them, like you just said. And the one I was talking about was the idea of, like, trying to constantly have the president in your viewfinder and yeah. i think he i think the reporter uses the phrase like in case the president gets waxed and it's just like, Oof, <laughs> right. it's like so wow. there's a so there's the the balance right is that the press is presented as both important to hold the president accountable and there are moments that she brings forth across history where the press fails to do that but at the same time the way that the press uh, has developed their relationship with the president, celebrity in chief, is the phrase George Stephanopoulos evidently used in her interview, in his interview with her. Um, that that also has an unhealthy aspect to it. In the Thomas Jefferson section, uh, she has interviewed a historian at Jefferson's home in Monticello, and uh, that this this word comes through. It's only said at the beginning. I sort of wish she had brought it back because I found it so impactful. And the word is panoptic, which is how Jefferson was trying to design his estate to be panoptic, um, and, and so that means all seeing. But it can also mean being seen by everyone. So as Jefferson was building it, he wanted his estate to have the ability to look out on everything around him. Um, But he actually wanted to be sort of private inside of it. But this historian reflects on, well, the word sort of has a double meaning. It means all seeing, but also being seen by everyone. And the historian comments, isn't that so interesting? That's the presidency, isn't it? All seeing, but being seen by everyone. 
Right, right. It's fascinating the the analogy of like building Monticello high enough so you could see all the land around him, which he, he also owned all the land around him. Um, and and then, but then also all the land around him, looking up to Monticello and knowing it's under the influence, and both knowing it's under the influence, but also knowing that it's always visible. That's like the move from Jefferson to Clinton in the White House changes there, right? Because it starts as this super power move by Jefferson to buy all the land and make sure all the land can see him. Um, um, but then, but then the White House is different, right? Because the White House has has, uh, I mean, a, in a technical way, owns all the land around it, um, and yet is is under such scrutiny, such uh, you know, watchful eyes at all times, and is and and then the the perversion of that even more, where the watchful eyes are completely um, subservient to the news cycle generated by the White House and the kind of endless. Uh, uh, push that 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 is a result of that kind of uh, really broken, messed up relationship. Yeah, and so she pulls across these moments in these presidents' lives throughout history. The Jefferson Sally Hemings moment, where she talks about how the story was you know broke, quote unquote, because Jefferson tried to hire a newspaper journalist to attack Adams and Hamilton, and the journalist found out about Jefferson and Sally Hemings and attacked him instead. But then she also has a series of modern interviews interviews where people nowadays reflect on the fact that despite how horrifying the Sally Hemings story it truly is, even today, nobody cares. Nobody right. really judges, you know, I don't, and nobody is harsh, but generally the population's not sitting in constant judgment of Thomas Jefferson over this really, truly very horrifying thing that happened in his life beyond just the fact that he enslaved a bunch of people, which is horrifying in and of itself. But even though this newspaper man hired to attack his enemies managed to turn that back on him, that still doesn't it doesn't, you know, live through to today. Later on, she she reads interviews or or perhaps these are these reporters are still alive. I get a little bit lost there of people who followed FDR around and FDR had a mistress who moved into the White House. But the reporters didn't feel like they could report it. Right. Yeah, I think FDR is is a fascinating crux in this story around a, a president who kind of play, played cards well enough that he had the press pretty much completely on his side and could do whatever he wanted. And then and then we 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 watch that relationship um, of them like I think I think one of the interviews talks about how the press are were were in the room with him when he was doing a briefing like next to his desk so this really close relationship with the press and then we we kind of see I think there's an interview with someone who talks about uh, bowling with I, I think it's George Bush Senior there's so many presidents in this play and and the way that that he could kind it's it's a it's kind of insinuated that the press can be bought. By careful attention. Yeah, well, the reporter <laughs> that she's interviewing at that point does try to make some strides in being very clear that it's not about being bought and getting favorable sure, news sure. stories produced. But how he describes it is, you know, if the president invited you to dinner or invited you to go bowling with him, then that that for you, that was really special. It meant a lot. You could send a picture back to your family. And what ended up happening then was if it came to a point where as a journalist, you had to give 
somebody the benefit of the doubt, either the president or somebody saying something about the president. Who are you going to trust one way or the other, all things being equal? You might be inclined to trust the president who invited you to go bowling with him. Right, right. That's a f- so so what, what just happened in these last 30 seconds is a fascinating thing, right? I just, and, and it and speaks into this play's verbatimness. I just made a super judgment <laughs> around this interview <laughs> that he's saying, essentially the press can be bought. And Jacob responded with the actual verbatim stuff from the from the interview. So that's kind of the cool thing that's happening in this play is you are watching these scenes, making your judgments, and yet the playwright is 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 standing back and saying, no, these are the verbatim words. Listen to them again. You're so right. That is exactly <laughs> why this is so powerful, why this yeah. kind of theater is so powerful, is because the playwright does have some power over the story being told by what she chooses to tell and how and the order in which she chooses to tell it. But the words are not being um, summarized, right? Yeah. This is a, you're hearing this reporter tell it and she is doing her work as an actor to say it exactly like he said it. Mm-hmm. To so that you get the effect of watching something that is very real and very gray. There is no judging on her part. It's simply presenting it how he said. This is what he said and how he said it. To the best of my ability as an actor and a playwright, this is what was said. And those judgments, like Jackson just made, are <laughs> ours to make and not hers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so it's 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 such an exciting part about the, about about this show is that it is just all observations as closely as as closely as someone can basically swear an oath to say I'm just going to make observations from these interviews as as truthfully as I can. Anna Devere Smith has done that. Then she just leaves it up to the audience to have conversations like we're having right now and with all of you out there around what our judgments are around these people. And that's that's super different from, you know, wherever you get your news from, there are judgments being made in various degrees uh, by almost any news source. So so I, I just think it's a really exciting thing about this script and about what theater can do in journalism is it is it can present, you know, it holds you for two and a half hours or two hours, however long, long the show goes, and forces you to look at observations as opposed to reading, reading uh, some judgments thrown in with the observations. Yeah, I, I, absolutely. And it just, it, it's enthralling even just to read it. And yeah. I suspect there are maybe people for whom reading it is not as exciting as reading <laughs> your standard psychological drama. But right. I, I just love this kind of stuff where the real life is presented in this interesting and very frank, open way. Now, there are, saying that, there are some very theatrical elements to the show. Uh, The Abraham Lincoln assassination being sort of a prime example, which happens in about the middle of the play, maybe a little before the middle of the play. Yeah, it's fascinatingly woven in with the the dialogue of the play that was uh, playing while Lincoln was assassinated, and, and it's, I'm, I'm forgetting the name, it's something like Our American Cousin or something like that. I'm sure all you history buffs out there are gonna like lampoon me for this, but uh, the the play that was actually happening in the theater as Lincoln was uh, assassinated is interwoven into the scene in really interesting ways that kind of highlight different parts of of what's happening. And this is perhaps a really good example of how the play is both a one-person show and not. 
because right. it was developed using a full cast up at one point up to 14, like I said. It was performed by Anna DeVere Smith by herself, though, when she premiered it at the Public Theater in 2000. And I truly, I have no idea how she did it. Um, the way that everything is woven on top of each other, I know at various points she used recordings. Um, it's oftentimes to play the interviewer for those scenes, and she played the interviewee, which is interesting because it's her interviewing them, but that's not what we're talking about right now. I'm just interested. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there's all this layering of the play that's going on while Abraham Lincoln watches the play, while other characters are being interviewed, all of it happening at the same time, and she's much better than me. I just don't, I can't picture that in my head. But at the same time as stuff like that is happening, there are moments that are clearly for one actor in this same section, right? Abraham Lincoln, the assassination happens. The play is going on. Abraham Lincoln is shot. And the stage directions describe that the actor playing Lincoln should, after the assassination, stand up and immediately transform into this photographer that she has been interviewing, modern-day photographer that she has been interviewing about how photographers are, you know, the substance of his interviews ends up being photographers are a little bit of bloodhounds. They're after shocking pictures, don't want to miss anything. And so she, playing Lincoln, is assassinated. Then she morphs into the photographer and takes pictures of the assassination scene. That assassination scene. Now that... (laughs) (laughs) Good Sean Connery. Yeah, yeah. That's how the stage direction describes how the assassination moment happens. If you got a cast of 14 people, you don't need the same person to play Lincoln and the photographer. Right. So at that moment, she's clearly imagining a one-actor show. And the evocative imagery of the dead Lincoln becoming the photographer, taking pictures of the assassination that happened hundreds of years before he was born is an incredible theatrical layering moment that sells itself to the one-person experience. Yeah, and I and I think even, even the, the scope of this play is enormously helped by the one-actor experience. I think this play has a bunch of loose tendrils floating around if it's a bunch of characters. Um, you, you have to keep track of different people, and you see different actors come around again, but the theatricality of the moment that Jacob just described, or other other moments in the play where, where the actor essentially, there's one where the actor is, is playing two people, and they both have different props, and I'm forgetting which scene it is off the top of my head, but it's like, let, let's just say a cup and a pipe for now. Um, and and the, the actor is switching back and forth between these two props. Um, that That's a powerful moment of, of one-person theater that doesn't have to happen when two characters are in two different spotlights. Yeah, so Um, you're talking about the moment where she takes these two historians who debate the Sally Hemings story and debate about the the validity of it or perhaps whether Jefferson was even potentially gay or did he have extramarital affairs and, and debate the evidentiary record. And she says at the beginning of the scene, this conversation never happened. I've created what sounds like a conversation by cutting little bits from each of these interviews and snapping them together. But in the stage directions for the scene, she imagines one actor playing both parts, which you wouldn't necessarily need to do if it were a, a fully casted show. Right, right. And I, and, and I think that aspect draws the play together. 
having having one person, despite the fact that occasionally there are scenes that seem like they range a little bit outside of the 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 broad uh, uh, current, I guess, of this play. And yet, because they are the one character or the one actor portraying them all, you can't say that they're apart. You you or at least your brain won't, <laughs> or at least something in you will 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 connect these pieces in and force you to say. Well, okay, so how, how is this connected? It gives you one more thing to hang your hat on when you're in a scene where you're like, how, how on earth does, uh, you know, this, this photographer connect to the story of FDR or, or Thomas Jefferson or, or the, the brief aside that we get into Nixon? You have to grapple with the fact that this is the same person playing it, so there must be a connection. Where is it? How can I find it? And that's part of what makes it theater, too, right? And not just a history book. I mean, this, this right. is obvious, of course, but this is a, a play meant to be performed. So it's performed, imaginably, by one actor. And that makes it a theatrical experience different than seeing, uh, than reading a history book, than seeing a documentary. This is one person taking on other identities, in this case, real identities, and bringing their words to life as accurately as they can can. And even if you went to see um, uh, a presentation of historical papers by Abraham Lincoln or whoever, the people reading them at like a history society or whatever wouldn't be playing Lincoln. They'd just be themselves reading Abraham Lincoln's page aloud. It is the element of pretend that makes this become a theatrical experience different than a historical or journalistic experience. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 I, I was reading a couple of interviews and there was some critique of this play as well as her earlier plays that were very either very journalistic or very theatrical. And and the, the, the interview I was reading was was was, I think, correct in saying that you don't you can't separate those things like those. That's what makes this play. So, what makes uh, uh, verbatim theater so interesting is the fact that it can sit in both worlds and that it can offer something new. As we've as we've, as we've been saying a bunch about this, like you get to see the characters because you're imagining, because you're pretending, because the actor has committed to playing them faithfully. It's a whole other experience that can't really be tapped by any any other medium. Now, we've said a couple of times how awesome it is that she's just presenting these words as they are, how you know incredible to hear the stuttering and the stammerings and, and just hear what they said and make your own judgments. But that is not quite true, right? Because like any editor, <laughs> she has arranged these stories very intentionally. And the way that she arranges them and places them and Con- puts them in context of other interviews does matter. For example, the one interview she has with President Bill Clinton as, is, as we've said, before the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And the interview is basically about Clinton sort of um, making the case that the press brazenly being willing to spread rumors whether or not they're true and ends up harming people who work at the White House and ends up harming the whole governmental system. He's actually making the case that they end up costing uh, White House staffers so much money that they go bankrupt for choosing to go and work at the White House for to pay legal fees for all this stuff that the press drags up in their attempt to serve is the case he makes. Now, that's a very interesting, fascinating thing for a president to say. The fact that it is President Bill Clinton, and we know that it is just before the eruption of the Monica Lewinsky scandal— 
matters. And her putting that interview, which is not about that, in mm-hmm. context of a play about the Monica Lewinsky scandal, in a section about the Monica Lewinsky scandal, that is an editorial choice that changes the interview. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's concerning. The interview, I think he's talking a little bit about... Oh boy, I'm I'm testing my like when I was a six year old history at this point, but it's like the Whitewater scandal, and and they're they're trying to uh, bring about bring out the truth of like uh, investments that the Clintons made in Arkansas around resort areas, and so he's he's responding to that, but 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 we as the audience know that there's there's the the drop coming, that there's something else coming, and the playwright has set us up for that because we're swimming in that water that that and we get to like we get to like hearings. There's a couple verbatim hearings uh, of 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 the uh, the the Clinton the or Bill Clinton in front of Congress that that we get to be a part of too. So it's just it's we're we're swimming in the water of of this whole thing while we receive this 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 interview from Clinton around something that that was before all this happened. Then we kind of. You know, you kind of have to, again, here I am judging Jackson today, I guess. This is my day for judgment. <laughs> you, you have to ask the question around hypocrisy. You have to ask the question around uh, uh, wondering wondering uh, when, when, it get, when these rules get to be applied and when they shouldn't be applied. And another example of that kind of editorial sensibility that goes throughout the play. Later in the play, Anna DeVere Smith presents an interview with Cheryl Mills, who who worked in the Clinton administration. And the interview is, uh, we don't know what question was asked. All we have is her answer, which is the truth for the most of the play. But she Mills is describing how the law in most states does not is not really about right and wrong, but is more about responsibilities and obligations. And she gives the example of if you if you discover a baby face down in the water, are you legally obligated to help or morally moral obligation aside? Of course, mo- I think most people would agree you're morally obligated to help if you can. But she makes the case, are you legally obligated to help? And some states have passed Good Samaritan laws, but most don't. And that doesn't have to do with right and wrong, but about protecting freedoms and and obligations and responsibilities. Now, that interview is not about the press and their relationship to the president and how they choose to present things or not present things. Not about that at all. But it is told in the context of a story about the press and how they choose to present the president, the lens through which that happens, the relationship through which that happens. And so that interview, which is not about that, takes on that that timbre, that color. It is a commentary on that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You certainly can't, you, you, you can't view these. Um, I think, I think you're wise to, to bring out the, uh, the, the flavor of the play itself does have some, some editorial thing to say. <laughs> it's, it's subtle. And I think about as subtle as possible, I would make the argument, um, to, for, for, for that, to, to present these as objectively as possible, but it's, 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 it's not completely free of, of editorial comment. <laughs> Well, right, and, and and that's also part of what makes it art and not history, right? I, I would I would imagine yeah. historians and journalists try to say this is what happened. I'm going to try to bring out the threads of what happens, the story as truthfully as I can, so that you can understand it. But I am not try. I mean, you know, we have some yeah, problems have with journalism yeah, yeah. and the media. But <laughs> in the best of worlds, journalists and historians would say I'm not trying to add a point or a flavor or a color or a timbre 
remember what's going on. I'm trying to tell the story as clearly as possible. But an artist, there is something, there's a reason Anne DeVere Smith arranges these interviews in this way, includes the material she includes, chooses not to include the material she doesn't choose to include. And that is part of what makes this the art piece that it is. Right. Yeah, it's part of part of the experience. Part of what you, what you're signing on for when you're coming to see it is is a, a little bit flavored by fla- flavored by the orient organization of the scenes. We're coming towards the end of our our time here. I did just want to just like throw this one out there. We talk about the title of the play sometimes. Um, there there is a. Uh, a implication from the title of this play house arrest right we're talking about presidents we're talking about white house what do you what do you make of the title house arrest for this play yeah I, I, some of it i think comes from the interview with clinton which i believe begins with the question do you feel like a, the press treats you like a criminal in when you're in the president and bill clinton goes on to say how you know when you're the president you don't have the benefit of being innocent until proven guilty you don't have the benefit of the doubt um and so i think that's part of it as you mentioned just now the the, the white house as the symbol of presidential power and the relationship of the press to the white house so Part of the commentary in the title is this idea that presidents are trapped. I forget what interview it is, but there's an interview where somebody goes into that idea that both the press and the president are captives to each other. The press is captive to to go everywhere and everything the president does because they're afraid of missing that picture. They're afraid of missing that story. And the president is more obviously trapped by the press in every part of his or her life being exposed for public view. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That, that like, uh, the house of the president is not truly a sanctuary, um, uh, for the president. And, And I think it asks interesting, interesting questions around that, whether it should be or not, um, I th- there, there is one interview with uh, Anita Hill that is called House Arrest, and it, and it leans into this theme of, really, my house is the only place that is a judgment-free zone or a, or well, a place— I, But the interview, too, is, is also about, like, that's what she thinks is right and wishes, right. but due to the fame that surrounded her and her terrible situation— uh, she, when she tried to go home, she found that even that was no longer the case. Right, right. Home, I, I think, though, is kind of broadly her home, like her hometown. She ex- describes an interaction with with people uh, at, at like a coffee shop or something like that, and and she's not truly anonymous there. Um, however, uh, th- there is there is at least uh, the start of the interview starts with I feel like I have a very limited space, and it's really limited to my physical home, but just the house. Um, and and so so she's but she's the president talking. doesn't even get that right. Doesn't this is one of those that. editorial comparisons because uh, I think it's the Stephanopoulos interview is a really detailed description of how even in the White House, even in the presidential suite, you are surrounded by eyes watching. Right. Any, I mean, I I don't know that this is exactly what the play is trying to ask, but it makes me think of 
whether that's a healthy thing or not. <laughs> no, that that <laughs> is the question. I think that I yeah. think you're exactly right. I don't know that she presents an answer, but she tracks the way the relationship develops over time, and perhaps right. that is the button question of the play. Is this relationship we have between the press and the president now healthy? Examples like Jefferson and FDR present a very different world of the relationship between the press and the president, but she also inserts the fact that that allowed those two men to get away with some nefarious stuff. Right. I mean, apparently FDR abandons his mistress after bringing her into the White House. She's now dying in the hospital, and he brings his wife to go see her. I mean, right. apparently, according to the play, I don't want to get sued for libel or anything, but according <laughs> to the play, that is a story that happened, and so... That the reporter who tells that story says, you know, I didn't feel comfortable reporting that. So she asked the question, was it was it more healthy back when the press didn't report stuff like that? Is it more healthy now that they would scavenge a story like that? Right. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 the play leaves it delightfully ambiguous or at least not ambiguous, perhaps, but it doesn't moralize it at the end. It doesn't give you a, uh, a parable end. To it, like you're left with the conversation that we've been having as as to whether whether we should expect to be in every aspect of our pub or of our leaders' lives, um, so that things like uh, FDR and Thomas Jefferson's uh, uh, tra travesties uh, don't happen, um, or or do you is is a human being capable of functioning? In that space, do they need a space that is separated out that that is not with photographers around waiting for them to trip or or get shot or whatever? Yeah, well, and you just said, and, and if the, if we're you know in, if we've got all these eyes on the president, so that they won't happen. But isn't that sort of the point of the Clinton story? Is that it did happen? Still, it did happen. right? Yeah, with eyes everywhere, it happened. Right. Yeah. Yeah, perhaps it's an unfixable problem. Good night, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> but that, I, that that button question of what is the healthy balance between the relationship of the press and the president, I think, is the question that the audience walks away, having been enriched so much by the knowledge of American history about this world and learned so much about people, presidents, stories, um, and then the very human experience, too, of watching this actor put so much effort into telling people's words exactly as they are. Well, here we are at the end of our time uh, as far as the podcast goes. Again, th this play, there's there's so many little facets of it. We didn't, I mean, there's, there's something like 30 or 40 some plus interviews in this play and and we we only kind of brushed on the on the, the 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 tallest ones amongst them or the most obvious ones amongst them there's so much more to talk about this play uh so let's continue the conversation if you have read this play if you happen to see this play if you've been in it what a cool show to be in uh, we'd love to keep talking about this play with you you can find us on facebook instagram or twitter at the user at the username at no script podcast we also have a gmail at uh, no script podcast at gmail.com find us on any of those sites we'd love to keep talking about house arrest with you and please consider recommending this podcast to your friends and family you can send them to podbean where we're hosted to apple Podcasts, google play and spotify um you can also get connected with us on facebook where every monday we just post a link to the new episode and every wednesday we post the advertisement for the episode coming up so you can read ahead if you'd like 
consider joining us next week for the last week of monologue months. Yeah, we are almost exactly three-fourths of the way through monologue month. Boy, now. howdy, 74.8% wow. for sure. Stats. <laughs> uh, so, so we're going to be wrapping up the theme month next week, so get excited for that. But until then, I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. Thanks for joining us for No Script, the podcast. We'll see you.